0: Welcome to Glam City. I'm Anna Clark. I'm Chelsea Barnett. And on Glam City, we speak with the hardworking people, as you might remember, in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums, the glam sector. We're going to go behind the scenes and pull back the curtains on some of Australian, and Sydney in particular, cultural institutions. We're back for another season. Yay! Season four, can you believe it?
1: I know, fantastic. It's so, exciting. so far.
0: On this episode of Glam City, we are discussing the City of Sydney public art program with Councillor Jess Scully and curator Margaret Betteridge. Welcome both of you. Hi. Hi Anna, hi Chelsea, good to hi. be here. Thanks so much for joining us. First Jess, you are a curator a former magazine editor, an advisor, and since 2016, an elected council member at the City of Sydney. Yes. That's an incredible resume. It's a lot of hats. (laughs) And I noticed on your website
2: it's split yeah. quite distinctively
0: <laughs> into two Counselor curator and yeah. curator yep. Exactly. Yep. exactly Your two <laughs> lives totally. I assume they merge often.
2: Well, this is the thing. I mean, it's quite tricky because it is a small town and a lot of these things overlap. But when I started to uh, decided to run um, for um, the city council, I had to stop doing a lot of my public art projects. I ended up winding up almost all my public art practice because so many great projects happen in the city of Sydney and I just didn't want there to be any conflict so it's it's been a shame I've, I'm doing less public art and um, but I'm doing some in other parts of the city. And I guess then um, with Margaret
0: your work as a city of Sydney curator there must be an opportunity then to draw on some of that expertise and to create kind of projects that merge that public outward looking aspect of art and the city's
3: Oh, totally. I mean, one of the things that's great about working at the City of Sydney is that there's a lot of cross-fertilisation across the organisation and it's a really wonderful opportunity to bring different perspectives to the way people look at, for instance, commissioning public art because one of the things that I've introduced in the time that I've been there is um, the idea of collecting things that relate around the subject of public art and adding those to the collection so that in 50 or 100 years time there's a context for those works of art and a, a rationale for them being, surviving and really sort of grounding them in the, the sort of community spaces that they um, exist in the city. So that's that's been a really great experience and it's broadened what might have been a fairly traditional collection about a lot of middle-aged men, shall we say, who dominated the council until really um, sort of around the start of 2000s. So that's been a really sort of great aspect to the work that I do.
1: And you wrote a book, did you not, Margaret, about city the city of Sydney and the objects of Sydney. Can I Can you did. tell us a little bit more? yeah.
3: This was a a project that was a passion of mine and I did it in the year that my daughter did the high school certificate and it worked out really well because after dinner she would go off to do her study and I'd go off and do the writing and the preparation for the book and we didn't get in each other's ways, which was I think probably a good thing for our relationship. But the reason that I was very keen to do the book was that I quite often would go to give talks to organisations or just socially talk about the town hall. And when I mentioned things about what I loved about the town hall, people would say, oh, I never noticed that. So I'd talk about the stained glass windows or the fabulous cedar joinery and carving in the building. And I began to realise that people went to the town hall for concerts and speech nights and all sorts of activities, but they were really not aware... ...of the environment that they were surrounded by. Mm. And I felt a a deep sense of sadness... ...because I was passionate about the building... ...and I felt that I had to find a way to share that with people. Obviously through tours of the building and talks that I give... ...I can do that to a small audience. But it really became a a sort of... ...I was driven (laughs) to do the book... And we're not a publishing organisation so there was actually quite a journey um, for me and the organisation to get that project through. But also the Civic Collection doesn't have a high profile either so Mm. it was an opportunity to look at the building and the collection and then to try and make some links between the two because the collection is part of a working um, sort of assemblage of items that have a role and a function. So it was... It was quite a complex thing to try and get across to people. I remember going to the town hall, I think, for the first time in it was about
0: year two for some sort of, I don't know, children's performance. I think we were in The Wizard of Oz and I played the straw man um the scarecrow straw man yeah scarecrow, S- scarecrow, scarecrow thank you uh which I, I wonder if I peeked too early um <laughs> but but I remember really strongly going into the town hall and just being blown away like it was the grandest thing mm. I had ever seen in my life and you know the, the sort of seats that go up to the ceiling and the organ and I, I don't think I've ever I, I still get that feeling actually when I walk in that there's something really special and I guess the work that you're doing in terms of telling that story but also that the the book about the 175 objects this the, the
3: material culture of Sydney is it is incredible and it touches all of us doesn't yeah, it it does and that's what I find with um the the whole town hall thing everybody has a town hall story and we ran a program a few years ago called we love sydney town hall and it was a, an attempt to try and Shift people's focus away from the architectural significance of the building as a landmark in the streetscape, which it is. But it's got a soul, and mm-hmm. you feel that when you walk into it. I went to the town hall at school, when I was at school for a um my first Sydney symphony concert, and I had the same sort of feeling. And when I walked back in my role as curator, I would say to you now that I don't ever not have that feeling. Every day it sends um, sort of spine-tingling um, feelings and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But I also remember one of the early pieces of research I did was on Joan Sutherland. There's a big um, sculpture of Joan Sutherland, well, relating to Joan Sutherland, in the town hall. It's a huge piece of marble and it uh, features a, the ear in sort of relief and it's a tribute to the power of music um, and listening to music and I was trying to find a little bit of context for the sculpture and read that Joan Sutherland had first performed on the stage of Sydney Town Hall at the age of 12 and she never forgot the power of and the experience and I thought... That's such a defining thing, wonderful for her to say it, but all of us um, have some sort of connection with the building. She didn't peak too early. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't that fabulous? There's a building in the city where
1: everybody, no matter what, or who? Yeah, I'm more likely to attend talks rather than or, or attend things. But I absolutely know what it's you feel. It's just you what haven't you? peaked yet. <laughs> I like that. That's coming. Um, <laughs> but I, I completely understand. You know, when you go there and you do feel overwhelmed by the majesty of the of the architecture and the surrounds the surrounds of the building, um, it's quite extraordinary. And that's really lovely that you continue to feel that.
3: Yeah, and and it's amazing that the city fathers wanted that for the building when they built it so their vision is alive and kicking Mm -hmm. today
2: which i think is extraordinary and there's so much about the building that um, is this sort of statement of intent for a city that wasn't quite born yet Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's so many fabulous parts of the story i mean the, the town hall was built in two parts which was i only learnt one of the first perks of, of joining the council was you get a tour with, with Margaret and, and Rebecca, uh, Margaret's assistant, who, um, who took us around and explained parts of Town Hall. And there's this incredible uh, room, which is Centennial, not Centennial Hall, the one in front, the vestibule, vestibule. the vestibule, which is the most ornate room. And it's got something like 36 different paint colours on the wall and it has the incredible chandelier. And that was actually Sydney Town Hall. And now it's just the ante room to Sydney Town Hall. And for a long time, before they had the budget to, to blow out the back, put the extension on, just like everybody does with a house in Sydney, um, they they used the front. And then they built onto it and they kept expanding it. And then in the 70s, you know, they built on Town Hall House, which was where, you know, suddenly the workforce was too big, not everyone could fit in Town Hall, and they had to keep going. And then all of that Town Hall House, Town Hall Square, or, or where... um. Uh, St Andrews is and that whole area. That was all built in in the 70s, sort of a uh, proto-brutalist style as well. So it kind of keeps adding parts of Sydney's ambition mm. to itself. Uh, and it's this marvellous public asset that keeps on changing mm. as a building. I mean, the collection is, is something else and that. We really should talk about 175 and the beautiful um, collection. But, uh, you know, my first memory of Town Hall is I don't remember ever going into town hall but i remember meeting everyone i've ever known at the steps of town hall basically like you'd arrange to meet at town hall steps and now meeting at town hall steps means something totally different because there are no cars on george street and it's become the most beautiful amphitheater the the acoustics are incredible like when someone is performing outside woolworth's it sounds like they're inside town hall Um, and now you come out at you know six o'clock on a weekday afternoon and there are people sitting on the steps watching a concert essentially and sitting on the edge of flower beds and lingering and they have already reclaimed this public space that isn't quite finished Mm. uh, but is people just get the sense that this is a place for them Mm. and that it belongs to them and i think that's the wonderful thing about town hall i like the way
0: you talk about um, both of you, that sort of statement uh, of town hall, and it's very striking a lot in a lot of those public buildings, even perhaps school buildings in the nineteenth century. It's a real sort of colonial statement that something has arrived here, and it's building, you know, a, a sort of a civilization, and I mean that very sort of pointedly in that term um, by obliterating a, a former civilization. And there are many layers going mm-hmm. on here in terms of that the meaning of of town hall, as you say, Jess, and the sort of um, the sort of, I guess even the meaning of the City of Sydney how that has changed over time and I'm interested in perhaps way that you could explain in your role as, um, as Deputy Chair of the Cultural and Community Committee how that sort of continuing evolution, you know we can now reinterpret Town Hall and the City of Sydney through that lens of contact, colonisation, invasion etc it's changing all the time what are the ways that art and culture, uh, new voices, uh, critical voices emerge and sort of, I guess, blend in with and overlap these former colonial
2: um, grand narratives
0: in the city of Sydney?
2: It's a, it's a tricky one because I think for a lot of people they're wedded to history as one moment in time. You know, they stand at a point and they say, well, history was... The Victorian period and we must at all costs preserve that moment or other people say you know history was you know the moment when I went out on Oxford Street and it was that that (laughs) certain way and that was the you know the moment in time and the reality of of cities is that they are constantly evolving and constantly changing um, and it's impossible to freeze it in time Um, and it's a futile exercise and it also sort of denies the vibrancy of a place um, and the the value of the the very old and the very new Uh, and so we have to embrace the fact that cities are constantly morphing entities and that they're collaborative constructions and that we're all involved every day in adapting the use of a city um, and shaping its fabric to the uses of the time and you can never predict what people are going to do with a city. So that's when we we hit really challenging moments where some people think um, that some relics and moments and icons in a city must stay as they are or we have forgotten a moment in history and then other people say well maybe that moment in history wasn't so honest after all maybe it needs to be recontextualized so there needs to be a honest frank and generous public discussion about how we recontextualize those moments in our history that uh, with the benefit of hindsight we see are flawed or we see that we're damaging Um, and we also have to have a conversation about what is so valuable and so important to the future that it does need to be preserved. One of the things that I find really um, interesting or challenging and something that actually came up in another panel, the Nightlife and Creative Advisory Panel that I'm also on, is we protect the heritage of a building but we never protect – we can't protect a use. Mm. So you can protect the fabric of a beautiful theatre but you can't say – But it's been a theatre for 100 years and we need a theatre and we need to protect that theatre. And there are other places in the world that are trying to make that happen. So in London at the moment they're trying to protect the cultural use. And I think that could be quite useful. But how do you do that without freezing a city in a moment in time? And that's the push and pull Mm. of a city. And one of the challenges is where do we have those conversations? How do we have that? And who gets to decide and how does the community Mm. get to be involved in that conversation? how do you allow room for people to use and abuse and modify? A city? And how do you commemorate
0: that deviance yeah. if you want to? Yeah. Um, I sort of Sydney has a great reputation of just kind of bulldozing through and you know f- forgetting um, its cultural heritage and even the feeling when you get to go to a place like Melbourne or it, it's quite different. It feels, um, I guess, austere might be a way, but it's also a very self-conscious about its its history. Uh, in a way that I think Sydney is only coming to perhaps in more recent years. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History, UTS, and today we're talking with Jess Scully and Margaret Betteridge from the City of Sydney, talking all things public art in Sydney. us a little bit about um the sort of city's plan for public art and some of that kind of cultural agenda
2: for the city of sydney absolutely uh we conducted basically the city of sydney every 10 years or so has a huge uh piece of public consultation initially the the one that we're currently working under is sustainable sydney 2030 and we're developing sustainable sydney 2050 at the moment Um, and that kind of gives us our guidance as a local government body Uh, and at the last one people really prioritised public art they really said that this was important and in subsequent feedback we've also heard from people that they want to see more First Nations public art they want to see that part of our history that isn't visible on our streets you know this is the place of first contact this is a place that should have a much stronger narrative that is visible about that so um, it became a real priority for the council and um, we currently have 36 million dollars worth of assets if you can categorize things in that way um, under our control within the city art program and that includes monuments and relics and things that we have to maintain and it also includes new works that we commission um, and that we create um, and commission artists to do it also um, and then there's in addition to that, there's a whole bunch of public art that developers contribute, but they work with the city's public art advisory panel to help select the most appropriate art, to make sure that there's a rigorous process and um, and that we're getting really strong contributions to the public domain. So uh, there are a couple of, of key defining um, pieces of policy. One of the most important is the EORA journey. So the EORA journey more broadly is... Um, our path towards reconciliation with First Nations people in Sydney, and that includes a visibility in the public domain as a very important tenet of that. So we've had Yinamadji, Thou Didst Let Fall, which is um, the beautiful um, work that is in um, Hyde Park, uh, recognising black diggers and we also have had a number of works um, like the Redfern Terrace painting by Barika Rennie and then the major one that is coming which is Judy Watson's Barra which will be the monument to the Eora on the headland there the most prominent position in Sydney really um, at the Botanic Gardens and that will be um, unveiled next year. So those are some of the key moves and in addition to that we have a number of sort of more intimate laneway works. We have this beautiful, um, very subtle work, Distance of Your Heart by Tracy Emin, um, which Margaret's also collected some items around. Uh, and um, then we had two other really significant large-scale works. Um, one was uh, Cloud Arch by Junya uh, Ishigama, um, which is destined for Sydney Town Hall Square, uh, and it is still it is still uh, a strong intention to deliver that work, um, but we did hit hit some roadblocks with the Sydney Light Rail, and another work called Pavilion by Hani H- H- um, which was destined for Belmore Park, also um, derailed by Light Rail. So we it is a work in progress, and it is always a challenge with public art. It's the one thing that everyone has an opinion about, and that's a good thing. That's what it's for. Um, but it's i think very much a work in progress in delivering those big scale works whereas the smaller scale works we're able to deliver more easily and there are a lot of really subtle and beautiful ones all over the city that um, we could also talk about that maybe haven't had the same splash on um, on installation but have been a slow burn in people coming to know and love them and discover them as they journey through the city
0: really interesting Jess your comments about you know some of those the the massive scale of art right down to the more sort of um, intimate um, objects and and installations. Margaret you have a lot of work with very small intimate objects that tell a history and I guess um, a kind of a sensibility of Sydney over time. Could you tell us a couple of those and and what they mean to I guess the, the sort of artistic and cultural history of Sydney? Uh,
3: the collection's quite a um, an eclectic mix of uh, traditional memorabilia associated with the workings of council, so we have quite a significant portrait collection. We have gifts that have been given to the city over um, the history of the operation of council. We have a very strong contemporary art Program.
0: What, what is, sorry to backtrack, what's, what would be
3: some gifts
0: that somebody would give a city? Like a new sprinkler system? Uh,
3: I'll start with the first gift that was presented to the City of Sydney, which was a very significant um, statement. It is on display in the town hall, and it's a very large piece of Seve porcelain. It's decorated in a classical style as a sort of um, urn with a cover over it. And it was brought out by the French government and presented to the commissioners of the 1879 exhibition, which was held in the Garden Palace. And it was a thank you to the organisers for organising such a spectacular exhibition. So it was a real statement piece that um, I think responded to the effort that Sydney had put into staging that exhibition. And for that, the gift is significant because it's really sort of putting Sydney on the map. So that's probably one of the largest gifts we have, right down to very small token gifts that are given to delegations um, who come to visit the city. And your comment about, um, you know, sort of living gifts is, is also apt because we have exchange programs with our sister cities and so things like specimens of trees, animals for zoos, li- books for libraries is part of the exchange program that we're involved in.
1: What do you think the role of a council is in engaging in art in this way?
3: I like to think that we have a very unique role to play that is very different to other collecting institutions and gives us a lot more flexibility in terms of perhaps the the braveness of the decisions we make to buy works of art and I quite often reflect back on the more not controversial but interesting statements that art artists make about where we are in Sydney at the moment, so our collecting policies restricts us to collecting works by Sydney artists, to works that have a Sydney focus, and of course we're trying to build up our Aboriginal art collection, and that's challenging because we're looking really at an urban um, genre of work, and it's not an area that is hugely represented at the moment, but we're encouraging artists to respond to. Our, our desire to build that part of the collection up. So it's a really interesting collection from that point of view. It's also interesting because a lot of our things are working pieces of art and furnishing. So I don't have an environment with a climate-controlled <laughs> space in which to display the objects, and that can be challenging sometimes because we have people who work in offices where they need bright lights and windows with no coverings over them so that's a a very interesting curatorial challenge for us because we're also trying to keep a collection for the future Mm. so we have to make Mm. some decisions Mm. based on a practical nature.
2: One of the things I love about Margaret's work and I'm lucky enough to sit with Margaret on the curatorial advisory panel. We got panels at the city, <laughs> we got panels. Um, and so I, I get to see the, the thought that she puts into both the maintenance of the pieces that are fully functioning pieces of equipment. Like I always say that everything in my office is heritage listed essentially. <laughs> like be careful with the, the toaster. And um that that those those functional items and things that we have to hold on to because they are part of that moment in time and then the more adventurous um, and discretionary decisions about how you fill that time capsule that she's creating um, with items that are going to tell the emotional and social story and the cultural story of this moment in time because imagine being in you know 2100 and looking back at this moment and trying to make sense of what we were doing and what was going on in the debates we were having and um and it's the artworks that margaret's collecting that are going to help color in that story Um, and yes the objects will say something but for me it's the artworks that will will tell that human story i guess also
0: in an a era to now where our correspondence is electronic um, and even things like Snapchat are instantly dissolved, the idea of having a cultural archive is um, a really important one for curators and archivists and people working in a sort of cultural sensibility of a city. So art is something that is can actually be kept. It is material. Very interesting in terms of looking back and what we keep. That brings us very serendipitously to our glam slam segment which is what we're looking forward to in Sydney's glam sector in the coming weeks
2: Jess what's in your glam diary coming up well for me March is my favorite because it's art month ah and art month is just too much all the time um, and it's fabulous. And um, one of the things that I love about Art Month is that they take over and showcase what's going on in lots of different areas. So um, every week of Art Month, you know, they'll start to celebrate Redfern Waterloo, they'll celebrate Darlinghurst, um, East Sydney. And, and so you get to dive into the um, culture and the spaces and the artists who are working and, and showing in, in these different parts of the city. So you're not just going to your usual haunts, you're, you're taken further afield. Um, so I'm really excited about that.
3: Cool. Margaret? I'm involved in an exhibition um, on at Customs House at the moment. It's a big experiment for us because we've actually used all floors of Customs House for an exhibition. The um, focus is is Cartographica and it's putting Sydney on the map and it is an exhibition that explores all the different ways that Sydney's been mapped over time. There are some... Interesting sort of counterpoints between traditional mapping techniques and the skills of cartographers. There's a beautiful section of bird's eye views of the city over time, um, which are really beautiful pieces of graphic design and illustration. There are maps that document the sort of way cities, the Sydney, Sydney, has been planned, um, how it's responded to its natural topography, how it's grown and um, changed its sort of um, appearance over time. But um, perhaps the most entertaining segment of that is the um, mapping that we got from the Ports Authority, which projects the movement of sharks in Sydney Harbour. And um, that's very captivating. (laughs)
1: Um well I am going to be heading back to the west which is where I'm from back to Penrith for the Ideal Home exhibition which is on at the Penrith Regional Gallery and something that I think really um sits alongside our conversation nicely is the the exhibition's kind of uh collection of household objects and furniture and design to really indicate um and represent the way that our notions of home and the house have changed over time. So that's where I'm going to be going in the next few weeks. So that brings us to the close of Glam City for today. And if you'd like to hear more from us, you can head to the 2SER website, which is 2ser.com. And you can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. Hit us up on Twitter, please. I'm at Chelsea M Barnett. And I'm at Anna Hope Clark. Jess, do you have a Twitter? or i have at Twitter? I'm home? at Jessaroo. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at glamcity at 2SER.com. Thank you so much to Jess and to Margaret for being our guests today. See you next week.